How Administrative Burden Undermines Public Programs, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Government administrators often write complex and interacting rules on financial structures, eligibility, compliance, and documentation that make it harder to access public programs to improve health and social welfare. They impose costs on the people that these programs are trying to help, for everything from direct compliance to understanding the rules to the mental burden of being caught in the red tape. This week, I talked to Donald Moynihan and Pamela Hurd of Georgetown University about their Russell Sage book, Administrative Burden, Policymaking by Other Means, and Related Research. They've helped launch a renewed recognition of the barriers that program beneficiaries face and a revolution of social science research designed to improve how programs are designed and implemented. But along the way, they've noticed that many burdens are knowingly implemented to undermine government success. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. So Pam, what is administrative burden and why do we care about it? Um, administrative burden is the kind of onerous uh, encounters that we have um, not infrequently uh, with public services and benefits or with the government more broadly. You know, it's it's waiting for three hours at your local DMV to get your license renewed or having to fill out paperwork four different times, um, seemingly for the, 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 the same providing the same information basically over and over again, um, the time involved, the, mon- the, the money sometimes involved in meeting these kinds of requirements to access state benefits and services. Um, broadly speaking, um, we think about this burden as having or entailing three different kinds of costs. So these include uh, learning costs, which are sort of figuring out which benefits or services um, that you're eligible for and need, Um, compliance costs, which are that sort of time, paperwork, um, interviews, uh, those sorts of administrative uh, ordeals. Um, And then the third category are psychological costs. And these psychological costs um, can entail everything from just sort of stress um, and frustration. It can entail um, stigma, um, but broadly speaking, they're the sort of psychological costs that might be a consequence of these encounters. We think these burdens are important for a few different reasons. Um, one reason they're really important is because they actually impede access to needed benefits and services. So we know, for example, that one in five people eligible for food stamps don't receive them um, in large part because of these burdens. Uh, similar for um, Medicaid, our public health insurance for low-income individuals and families. Um, And then other programs are much worse. So for example, the Supplemental Security Income Program, which is a really kind of poverty-based program for older adults and people with disabilities, has take-up rates about 60%. So four in 10 of people, really poor people eligible for these programs aren't getting those benefits. The second reason why we think it's important is because we think it, you know, really affects our kind of understanding and trust in government. Can government deliver on what it's promised to us? Um, And these negative encounters, uh, we think, and there's some evidence to this, leave people feeling like government just isn't up to the task. Don, which of these are the most uh, severe and what are the kinds of examples that uh, readily come to mind when you think about these costs? Yeah, so I think it's uh, th- there are examples we all experience in our everyday lives. Um, but I remember when we started working on this project in Wisconsin, one that really struck me was the state was trying to figure out if people 
who are eligible for public health insurance or actually working and could get that public health insurance through their employer. And so with the best of intentions, they sent out a letter to these individuals saying, can you go and verify from your employer that you don't have health insurance? And as you might expect, uh, something like 17% of those uh, people then lost health insurance and, and didn't get it recovered from their health employers. It was an example of where the policymakers weren't necessarily trying to do anything um, ill-intentioned. You know, they were basically trying to make sure that people were getting health insurance appropriately. Uh, but where individuals found that step of going to their employer and getting confirmation of health insurance status to be a really difficult step in, in sort of a surprising way. And so I think this sort of feeds back to what Pam mentioned about and sometimes these burdens occur in ways that are surprising and are large in ways we might not anticipate. And I, I think one other lesson from that example is that new burdens are especially onerous. You know, we, we go through life with a set of expectations about how our interactions with administrative services work. And over time, if we are dependent upon certain services, uh, if there's a change in those, it can have these fairly dramatic effects. And so, you know, there are other examples in, for example, Arkansas, when they introduce work requirements for Medicaid, and a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine found that about 95% of those who lost uh, their Medicaid coverage due to the work requirements were actually working or should have been exempted because of a disability. But where they really struggled, struggled was with the paperwork requirements. It was really the reporting part that they found difficult. It wasn't that they weren't actually completing the eligibility guidelines. Um, and so I think partly it's about the nature of the burden itself, when it occurs, if it's new, it's also about the situation that people find themselves in. So if they're working, we have some evidence that if they're experiencing scarcity, um, that affects their cognitive processing and executive function and their ability to manage these sorts of tasks. Similarly, if you're experiencing you know, significant negative health events um, uh, or have generally poor health, or are struggling with mental health, that also diminishes your ability to manage things like forms, appointments, uh, in ways that can really be counterproductive if you're trying to get public help for uh, the health problems that you're facing. So I think it's a you, you need to sort of take a broad view of not just the design of the burdens that arise through public action, but also how they might affect uh, different groups differently. So, Pam, you do find uh, that almost all of these burdens affect uh, groups unequally uh, and are especially hard on uh, low, people lower in socioeconomic status or, or socially excluded uh, groups. Um, to what extent do you think those are by design uh, that the policymakers kind of intended to make it easier on, on some than others uh, versus this is just what happens uh, when you kind of increase regulation in support of other goals? So this is, of course, the easy answer, but both. <laughs> um, so it is definitely by design in some cases. Um, and so we uh, see this, for example, one example from our book uh, is around the earned income tax credit, actually, 
Um, and there's discussions basically among lawmakers um, where they're basically saying, look, it's, you know, I get that it's a program that is focused on people working, but it's still a welfare program and it shouldn't be that easy to access, right? People can be very explicit uh, about the idea that we kind of should have these kinds of burdens in programs. But it's also the case that sometimes they are unintended. So Don gave the example about Medicaid in Wisconsin when they asked people to get letters um, from employers. And, you know, that was not they really didn't intend to kick people off Medicaid who needed Medicaid. That was and they reversed course in the end, actually, once they realized um, another really big example of this is actually California, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. So take-up rates for food stamps vary substantially across the country. In places like Wisconsin, actually, which are kind of purple, over 90% of people eligible for SNAP get benefits. In California, right, a state that we see as solidly blue, as very progressive, um, the take-up rate for SNAP is about 70%. <laughs> Um, and so the reasons for that are probably not, and there's some evidence I think about this, not really ideological exactly, but they have in California a county level administrative SNAP program. So each county administers the program differently. Um, and you do tend to see Minnesota's also like this in states that choose to do county level administration it seems to cause more burdens and barriers and you get lower take up rates. So it really varies, some by design, and then in other cases, um, there are sort of administrative issues um, that are driving that burden. Don, this is a kind of a, a reputation that uh, bureaucracies have, um, that they create complicated rules uh, for their own sake, or that they're used to filling out the forms, so they assume other other people would as well. Is that uh, a deserved reputation? And to what extent is it just about kind of large organizations in general uh, or government in particular? So I, uh, I think there are absolutely examples that we would uh, be able to bring to mind of administrative burdens that we've encountered in the private sector. So, you know, if you try to cancel a subscription to the New York Times or if you your gym membership, or if you try to schedule uh, a cable person to come out and help you, um, I think the the lesson is sometimes these burdens in the private sector actually serve the bottom line of the company because they're uh, rationing the provision of services in some ways or it's to their benefit that you don't exit out of their services. Um, one difference with the public sector is there, are, there isn't the same private sector bottom line, there isn't the for-profit basis for the operation of the organization. Uh, and I do think there is some justification to the uh, stereotype that public organizations are less able to get feedback about how well they're serving their customers. Um, and they don't have the same um, incentive structure and feedback loops to use that information to improve things. Um, and I, I think there's, there is more attention to that than there has been in the past. And maybe we can talk more about the Biden administration, what they're trying to do in this area. Uh, but certainly, if you think about public work, one of the things that public organizations do is to impose ne negative externalities upon um, each other and also members of the public, 
they don't always perceive those negative externalities or you know, by definition pay a cost for them. Pam, these uh, burdens are often justified as uh, necessary for reducing waste, uh, fraud, uh, or abuse uh, of programs. So, you know, to what extent do they actually uh, achieve that? And there's kind of a real trade-off here uh, between uh, less uh, fraud and abuse and, and more burdens. Um, and is it worth kind of paying some uh, cost uh, in burdens uh, to try to reduce even the appearance of, of fraud? I'm thinking of some of these like public goods games that you see played all over the world where people are kind of willing to pay some extra cost uh, to punish those those people that, that might be cheating off the system. Is that sort of something we should expect to have to pay? Yeah, I mean, so one thing that we kind of argue in the book is that um, if you're going to impose burdens, you want to actually understand the costs and benefits. And so the problem at the moment, actually, is that federal programs do a much better job of tracking uh, kind of fraud, waste and abuse in programs than they do um, in uh, tracking uh, who ends up not being able to access services, right? So, um, and if you're basically, if you know, if you're looking at fraud, waste, excuse me, um, fraud, abuse, and waste rates of say like one to 2% in a program, but like 20% of people eligible for benefits aren't getting that program. You really want to compare those benefits and costs basically associated with it. So I think that's a, the first point, which is that's sort of key. We're not saying burdens are always bad. It's just you really need to think through the costs associated with them. Um, I think the second point I'd make is that I think this idea that we have to have burdens uh, to keep fraud and abuse low is wrong. <laughs> so the program actually that has the, probably the least uh, fraud, waste and abuse would be the Social Security Retirement Program. It's also our least burdensome social welfare program. <laughs> the government keeps close track of our earnings. Um, uh, they do that in conjunction with employers. So you don't really have to do anything <laughs> um, except sign up when you're, whenever you want to kind of partake in those benefits. And there's very lo low rates of fraud and abuse in the program. Um, so these two things don't have to go together, basically. And in fact, sometimes um, the processes that you need in place uh, to deliver benefits with very low levels of burden are also processes that keep, can ensure that you don't have that kind of fraud and abuse. And what about the second point? Is is there sometimes when it's it might be worth uh, paying extra burdens uh, just to reduce the appearance uh, of of fraud? In other words, get, to get people to go along with the existence of the program and see these as protections. Yeah, I mean, I think the question is whether or not going back to the benefits and costs. Um, whether or not they actually uh, equal out, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess in, in a hypothetical world, a little bit of burden to ensure the popularity of a program and maintain it is uh, could be a reasonable trade-off. I'm just not sure that we have a lot of evidence though that that is working in practice, <laughs> that the, the relative cost and benefit trade-off is, is working in practice. There was a nice paper by uh, Susan Miller and Lael Kaiser 
that looked into degree of confidence in, in vignette experiments where people were described a program with different levels of burdens and found that people tended to have higher confidence when there was more uh, um, uh, steps that people had to take, but it was driven by uh, more conservative voters. Um, and so I, you know, I think that, this empirically, this may be true. You might see an increase in confidence if you held people's hands and said, here's what happens, and then we do this, and then we do this. Um, I think there's a second question then about, is that how we actually communicate this information to the public, right? Do we provide these point-by-point um, explanation of steps, or is the uh, communication about these issues much more crude and maybe actually, in fact, unrelated to the actual empirical risk that programs would face? Um, so, I, you know, I, I think in any given program, one thing we try to talk about in the book is to, to use some of the logic of cost-benefit analysis, like have a realistic discussion with evidence about what are the trade-offs between how many people will be negatively affected versus the benefits that you're hoping to get from um, imposing more burdens. So you find it, at least some examples uh, where high burdens may be a product of a low administrative capacity, um, but we also uh, can sometimes hear the argument uh, that, that giving um, administrative agencies uh, more capacity may uh, incentivize them to, to create more uh, rules and regulations. So is there kind of a, a trade-off uh, with, with building big uh, agencies or uh, is bigger mean more help uh, to potential beneficiaries? So I, I think if you start from a state of nature and there are no public services, then there are no burdens, right? So when we, we talk about some of these discussions in comparative terms, with colleagues studying in, in much poorer countries and less developed welfare states, some of the discussions are not relevant to them because they simply are not providing the types of services where they're trying to determine eligibility. Um, as you start providing those services, especially ones where you're trying to sort through which citizens are eligible, which are not, then you have to think about those mechanisms of, of sorting them out. So I think partly it's about like the growth of the state and when it takes on new services um, that generally tends to come with bureaucracy. But that so first of all, that relationship is not automatic. Um, so, you know, for example, we now provide much more of our welfare state through the tax system which doesn't come with a big bureaucracy uh, beyond the initial investment we make in the IRS. Um, and I think it's also about the design of bureaucracies and not just their size. And so this is something I mentioned earlier about, I think the Biden administration doing a relatively good job in trying to communicate to agencies, hey, you have to think about the effects of what you're doing on citizens and redesign administrative processes around that, the knowledge of those effects. Um, so, you know, I, I think the ideal is a high capacity administration that is very attuned to when it's imposing unnecessary burdens on the public, as opposed to a very large administration, which is sort of blindly imposing hassles on, on the rest of us that, that we don't really have an opportunity to, to protest against. 
Pam, you focus on uh, burdens for individual uh, recipients, um, but I can imagine a, a small business uh, lobbyist saying, you all finally get it, but everything you're saying here uh, applies to, to business regulation. Uh, they uh, There's lots of regulations that aren't clearly tied to the policy goals. Um, there's unnecessary uh, costs uh, that are imposed uh, beyond you know what, what's needed to actually uh, carry out uh, the stated purpose, and a lot of it's just because uh, the the bureaucrats are are creating rules for their for their own sake. So, to what extent um, do those arguments apply uh, the same way uh, to business regulation as they do to to these kinds of instances? Yeah, I mean, I think we we kind of talk about this in the book in terms of. Um, uh, pointing out that, in fact, I think Congress has been very receptive um, to concerns um, by both by both small and large businesses, actually, about uh, kind of burdensome regulations. Um, and there, in fact, has been legislation to try to address that. Um, I think the irony that we kind of point out is that there's the same folks, uh, particularly uh, in the Republican Party, who are kind of most concerned about reducing burdens for businesses, um, are pretty enthusiastic oftentimes <laughs> about burdens um, on uh, citizens and in, in certain kinds of public programs. Um, so I think that's more where we're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. They have um, an argument there um, in the same way that I would as an individual. I just think on average, um, they have more political leverage um, to actually get those kinds of uh, burdens reduced for themselves in a way that, for example, people in targeted programs um, have less leverage. The flip side, though, is I, I would say a program like more universal programs like Social Security and Medicare, you know, you have organizations like AARP um, because you have, you know, a much broader swath of the population that has some political power and leverage um, that gives uh, more space for those folks to be active and kind of push uh, to improve the delivery of uh, those services and benefits. But should liberals take more seriously the, the conservative arguments uh, that would be analogous um, on on this issue? So, you know, maybe their psychological costs, uh, costs to the um, people's images of government, uh, costs to willingness to, to work on behalf of public goals uh, from private sector organizations going through uh, this this same kind of, of paperwork. Yeah. No, I mean, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. It's funny. The part of the reason, though, that we wrote the book was because we were actually concerned that uh, progressives and liber liberals actually weren't taking these burdens seriously enough uh, for, for individuals trying to access public programs. Um, so the point of the book actually was to it was to get liberals to pay more attention to it, but get them to actually pay attention to it. Um, in programs like SNAP and Medicaid. I mean, I was in graduate school in the 1990s during welfare reform um, and, uh, you know, a, a sort of so much changed in public welfare programs during that period. And there was just no attention at all or very little concern at all about these kinds of burdens embedded in all these programs that they wanted to expand and people to access. The thinking at the time, I think, was sort of more ordeals mechanism thinking, which was that, you know, if people really needed these benefits, they would overcome these obstacles. And they were a lot more concerned about doing effective targeting and making sure that um, uh, programs were kind of 
targeted it in ways that produced the kinds of outcomes they wanted, um, with the assumption being that like if people really need them, they'll like they'll muddle through. Um, but I think um, you know one of the things that changed was uh, effectively behavioral economics and kind of realizations that came from that literature about people don't always behave quite as rationally as we think they do. Don, there's a whole industry of uh, usually nonprofits uh, that are designed to uh, try to help people uh, with these administrative uh, burdens. Um, in some ways, that shows that the, the policymakers knew they were <laughs> imposing big uh, burdens. They're often willing to support uh, kind of a nonprofit sector to, to help people uh, uh, deal with those, those burdens. How, how should we think about uh, these kind of quasi-official roles uh, that uh, the, these folks take on? Um, do they end up being excuses for policymakers to uh, make more complicated systems um, because uh, there's a, a group of people that, that they believe stand ready to, to help recipients? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. When we started writing on administrative burdens, we thought we were writing about citizen-state relations. Uh, but really, it's very hard to write about any aspect of American policy in any depth without taking into account third parties. And, and these can be nonprofits or private organizations that play this sort of outsized role in helping in a variety of ways to make services more accessible. And so you, the, mo the most obvious role that, that some of these organizations play plays the helping role. Um, so, you know, if it, there's evidence, for example, that if you are a member of a veterans organization in a state where those organizations are very active and engaged, you're more likely to get disability benefits because you can rely on that solidarity-based set of connections to help you negotiate the, the hassles and the paperwork that's involved with that. Uh, and in some cases, you know, we pay these uh, um, third parties. So you, you think about navigators with the Affordable Care Act who are sort of uh, um, uh, being rewarded to help people negotiate the hassles. Um, or if you think about the American tax system, and now, you know, we're not talking about nonprofits here, we're very much talking about for-profits like H&R Block or TurboTax. They do a tremendously good job at helping people get access to the earned income tax credit. And I think, you know, take up of that benefit would be much lower without those uh, tax preparation professionals. Um, another role that these uh, um, third parties play is that they're sometimes the target of burdens. Um, so sometimes, you know, you, if you think about abortion providers, as an example, um, these are groups that governments have very strong interests in regulating closely and will impose a set of burdens upon them in a way that's unusual for medical providers with the intent of limiting their ability to provide services to members of the public. Um, a third role is uh, that of lobbyists. And so, you know, we live in America and, and people have the opportunity to make their claims about how services should be provided. And I think in some cases that's very good. You have nonprofits who are closely connected to people receiving services um, you know, think about the immigration domain where they can articulate in a way maybe that the actual individuals themselves are perhaps afraid to about hassles that are imposed in immigration processes. Um, and so look for ways to identify and reduce burdens 
uh, Veterans Affairs is a great example where, again, you have really active organizations who are in constant conversations with Veterans Administration about how to make things work better. Um, but sometimes those lobbyists also operate out of self-interest. And again, the, the tax preparation industry that I just praised a minute ago, which does a great job at helping people get access to the ITC, has also been a strong opponent of making tax reporting more broadly simpler for the rest of us to access because you know that would cut into their bottom line. Um, I do think this sort of feeds into a broader pattern of fragmentation uh, where one reason why people experience burdens in America is, you know, we have a federalized system. You may be jumping between organizations um, that have different definitions of standards, um, and it all seems bewildering. And so, I, you know, so, but sometimes the, the role of these private third parties is to help knit that fragmentation together and help you to negotiate those hassles. Yeah, I don't know if either of you saw uh, Dylan Matthews' uh, post uh, recently about being a uh, assistant for a tax um, uh, uh, charity. Um, but one of the things he pointed out is that there's five different definitions of a family unit that they have to walk people through, and so they have to take these. Um, ask these intrusive questions kind of repeatedly um, just on a basic um, point. But I think part of the issue there is that these are five different policy regimes all running through the past uh, tax code. Um, so, so to what extent is that the complexity driven not by any individual set of regulators trying to uh, set the standards, uh, but by the fact that we just are trying to achieve quite a bit? Yeah, I mean, this sort of goes back to like a basic question of like, is this policy design or is it administration? That's the problem, right? And I do think, um, you know, if you look at like the EITC and the CTC, there are aspects, particularly to the EITC, about the design of that policy that just make it really hard to administer. It's confusing. <laughs> Low-income people got really confused about who's eligible, um, who, you know, which child is with which person, is the grandparent eligible? Um, you know, family forms are really complicated now. Um, and so trying to intersect that with the way that uh, policy is designed cl clearly create, I mean, it creates a lot of error. I do think on average, right, we know, though, that generically, even the people who get the ITC who aren't um, really supposed to, right? They're still largely low income. Like it, it really does appear to be that people just really struggle to navigate, uh, in that case, the design. Um, so there is this real tension about how complicated the design is and the degree to which you can reduce burdens with policies that are just very, very complicated. And it's, a, I do think it's like a key challenge um, in, uh, on this issue around with some policies. And that, I, I would add, I think the lesson for policymakers um, from this domain is not just to put yourself in the shoes of people who are on the receiving end of policies, but to understand that they're on the receiving end of multiple overlapping and not always consistent policies. And so there's, there's an opportunity there, I think, for greater coherence in how the American administrative state operates. Pam, you mentioned uh, being inspired to write uh, this this book to inform liberals, um, but of course there are 
polar polarizing trends, especially in American state governments. Um, and these issues are sometimes talked about in in uh, partisan terms, where Republicans want to reduce uh, the number of of recipients uh, for social welfare. Uh, uh, programs, um, so you know, and obviously in areas like abortion that you also cover, have a very explicit um, rationale for for reducing um, uh, the ability uh, to to actually access that service. So, uh, to what extent are we seeing kind of polarization around administrative burdens? Do Democrats have any kind of a coherent response to to reducing burdens, and are these going up more in red states? So it's interesting because I do think um, this is now an issue that progressives have kind of um, uh, are actually really taking more seriously. So, for example, in the debates around the expanded um, child tax credit, the Romney proposal um, included uh, uh, the idea that it should be administered by the Social Security Administration, which I think was in fact pushed by um, some think tanks in DC and folks in the in that space, whose point was, you know, they're probably better effect, they'll be more effective basically at um, ensuring people access the CTC. And there really were problems. I mean, there are millions of people who we most wanted to access the CTC, who didn't in the end. Um, and not because the IRS is a terrible organization, but just because like they really are not a social welfare agency, right? Like that wasn't what they were designed to do. Um, so I do think uh, there is more attention to it now on the part of um liberals and progressives in terms of understanding like this actually really does matter and they're kind of um, organizing around that. Um, I'm not sure it's really any different. I mean, I think part of our point in the book was conservatives actually had been way more effective at using this as a political strategy, um, particularly around abortion and voting rights, um, where they were pretty explicit about their goals and strategies to achieve these outcomes using burdens. Um, I'm not sure that much has changed in that way. I think they still, there's still real evidence that they continue to see that as a kind of viable strategy. Is it getting more burdensome in red states? I think it just depends on which policy domain. I mean, I think that programs that are highly federalized, um, there's only so much they can do. Um, and the Biden administration, for example, around programs like Medicaid and SNAP has been pushing states really hard to administer those programs in ways so that they're not super burdensome. Um, and, you know, states can always kind of push back. Um, but in general, the more federal control over programs, the less burdensome they tend to be. Um, so it just depends on the program. So you both have also uh, been actively researching health policy and and were um, following uh, the pandemic. Is there anything that we can say we've learned from the pandemic experience uh, about uh, the administration of, of programs? Um, were there positive examples of kind of cutting through red tape because we needed to deliver services uh, quickly uh, or did all of the same problems uh, reemerge? I think there were some positive lessons. Uh, I, you know, I think the headline would be in case of emergency, uh, keep it simple or build on what works. Uh, so, for example, when we hit 
uh, an economic emergency or a health-related emergency, expanding SNAP access is a pretty proven way to get money to people who need it and will spend it and will generate economic activity. Um, and so that, you know, that is a tap that we can sort of turn on um, when uh, um, major events happen. I think the unemployment checks worked pretty well, right? So um, we managed to get, or sorry, uh, the sort of pandemic relief checks, not the unemployment checks, <laughs> which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but the pandemic relief checks worked well. We, we were able to identify a subgroup of the population and give them a specific amount of money. And that's because the program was very simple and because we had the administrative data on hand to execute it well. So, you know, the eligibility was basically based on dependents and whether you were below a certain income level. IRS had that information. And based on that, it could, you know, easily target the people that it needed to. It was still an achievement, but I think the, the lesson, again, for policymakers is you can do these big things if you don't add a ton of eligibility criteria to the design of the program. Obviously, there are programs that did not work as well. Um, things like, I think, rental assistance really struggled, uh, partly because that was a new program, partly because there was also a sort of double burden involved in that you had to get the participation and administrative engagement of both the renter and their landlord. And so you're sort of layering additional amounts of complexity onto the process. And uh, I think clearly also the UI system revealed existing cracks in both the design and administrative capacity of state governments who had either neglected that area or in some cases had deliberately designed it to be uh, inaccessible and just really collapsed when huge volumes of people tried to use that system. So we're entering a, a period of prolonged uh, budget uh, debates in D.C., and one of the um, main things that House Republicans are pushing is uh, for additional work requirements for social welfare uh, programs. So um, I guess let's say that we agreed in principle that there should be programs that uh, people are only eligible for if uh, they uh, work during the year. Why is it that something that sounds like it should be simple actually become a big source of, of complexity and, and burden? Yeah. So um, anytime you add more conditionality to a program, right, like anytime you add an, an additional eligibility criteria, basically, you're going to make the program more complicated. So there's just sort of that basic reality. Now, why work requirements in particular? So I think the first issue is that a lot of pro programs, both the, the most relevant ones for this discussion, both Medicaid and SNAP, um, include a bunches of populations who would not be subject to a work requirement. They're, you're either too old, you're too young, or you're disabled. And so you automatically have a group of people who ideally you kind of want excluded from these uh, requirements. But it's not actually so easy in practice to actually exclude them. <laughs> um, so you basically you risk shoving people off the program who shouldn't even be subject to these uh, work, work requirements in the, in the first place. So that's like one part of it. Um, the second part of it then is uh, for the popular, basically for the populations in these 
programs. One, most of them work anyway. Two, the majority do at least. Um, two, the challenge with like the actual documentation and showing that you're meeting these work requirements imposes much higher hurdles than we kind of realize. And we have actual evidence about this. So they tried to do this in Arkansas with the Medicaid program. And basically what they found is they they basically kicked most people off the program who were actually working. Now, you can say, well, maybe they could have designed it better, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's, you know, that that may be true. But work is just really complicated for these populations. You're looking at people working in hourly jobs. Their schedules are all over the place. Um, they're in and out of jobs. They get laid off. Um, and so it's just ends up being kind of particularly complicate, complicated to document. So I, I think the bigger question is not so much whether or not people will get kicked off who should still be enrolled. Um, I think the bigger question is actually how many, how big of an effect. It was a huge effect, huge negative effect in Arkansas. Um, I think the question is like, is there a way to reduce that negative impact? And I'm suspicious based on what we saw in Arkansas and what we know from other programs that you're not just going to have just tons of people losing benefits who should still be on the program. Yeah, and I, I'd add to that. I think going back to this coherence point, uh, the people who have to do work re- reporting requirements for SNAP are probably also being asked to do it now for Medicaid if, if uh, the policies change there. And so you have the same population who are just consistently having to prove that they've met a certain set of requirements. And it's, it's really the difference between the eligibility for those programs. You know, if we agree that work requirements are important, if the state can capture that information seamlessly, that is one thing versus the work reporting requirements, uh, excluding many people who are eligible, um, that is quite a different thing. And that ultimately... I think undermines the purposes of the policy. You know, the the argument against, in particular, some of the legal arguments against work requirements in Medicaid is that it runs contrary to the statutory goals of Medicaid, which is to help poor people get health insurance. It's not to um, uh, encourage labor force participation. Um, the the and beyond the purposes, you also think about what are the costs. So. You know, we know um, with some evidence of, for those who are purged from the Arkansas um, uh, Medicaid work requirements that they, about half of them reported experiencing serious problems paying off medical debt, um, 64% delayed taking medications because of the costs that they encountered. Um, and so there are real human costs that come um, with imposing some of these work requirements. And, you know, I, I think partly... What, what makes work requirements in particular stand out is that they are popular. You know, if you ask, if you run a survey and you ask members of the public about work requirements for anything, you will get a solid majority um, because people do have this innate notion that people should participate and engage and not freeload. Um, but I think when you start to then see some of the human costs um, that are accompanied with them, people might be more cautious about imposing them. 
So I have a uh, rulemaking simulation that I use with my students responding to uh, comments, uh, and they inevitably make it much more complicated <laughs> from the uh, first rule to, to the last rule. So we've been talking about it as if uh, kind of this is something that the agencies impose, but um, especially with your comments about public opinion, it, it may also be just something we decide <laughs> to impose. Um, that is, is this just a product of, of us having a lot of contradictory goals and kind of our first um, our first impulse uh, to, to fix something like a burden might be another set of, uh, uh, of rules. Yeah, I mean, there's there's clearly some truth to that. Um, and again, like going back to the debates in the 90s about designs around sort of new social welfare programs, even in the 1990s, there, there was a lot of that effectively. Like, oh, but we need to make sure that this group gets it and this group doesn't. And oh, wait a minute, we need to narrow it even further because what about this incentive and that incentive? Um, uh, and you just end up with these incredibly complicated programs that a lot of people um, ultimately can't access. The, the flip side is, I, I do think though that, you know, we also, I mean, the, the flip side is like, we have a lot of evidence that people prefer to have more simple interactions with government themselves. So I might be willing to impose X requirement on someone else, but then if I'm the person who experiences those burdens, I'm a lot less excited about them. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think this is to the generic you know, 1980s point that would come out of social welfare research during that period, which is like more universal programs <laughs> um, uh, have the capacity to achieve a range of better outcomes. They're more popular and they do also tend to be a bit simpler as well. I think there is some evidence from psychology that humans have a tendency to add rather than subtract when facing complex problems, like they'll take the status quo as a starting point and then ask to solve for a certain solution, their, their first step will be like, what else can I do rather than how can I take away to make things better? Um, and I think in particular, progressives are probably very inclined to see addition of requirements and eligibility and, and targeting and carving out as a way to um, expand the reach um, add more nuance, uh, provide sensitivity to different groups um, when it comes to the implementation of policies and administration. Um, so I do think there is something to that. But, you know, to Pam's point, when you ask the public about, and, and uh, uh, we did a survey recently when we asked public about what they would like to see happen with the end of the public health emergency and asked them about different policy choices states could make to reduce hassles, like using pre-filled forms, for example, um, you get really solid bipartisan majorities who would say, yes, make it simpler, make it work better. Um, and so I think that's the challenge for policymakers is to have that in their head as, to, as they're doing their job. So you all have been exemplars at uh, integrating public administration concerns uh, with uh, the, the traditional concerns of, of social sciences like uh, political science and sociology. Um, what's kind of the current state of that uh, uh, connection as you see it? Is there still kind of a separated public administration that's geared more towards uh, practitioners and, and deals with things that the, the other parts of the social sciences ignore? Or is there more of an integration in thinking about implementation and interfacing with government programs um, in the in 
the social sciences uh, and public administration being more open to these broader political and social forces? Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, there's a long history of public administration in America. And if, if listeners are not familiar with it, if you go back 100 years in the social science in America, public administration was at the forefront and uh, people who are running the American Economic Association or uh, the American Sociological or Political Science Association tended to be public administrators. And they also tended to be deeply involved in the practice of government. Many of them went in and out of government. Um, and I think, you know, at some point in the 60s and 70s, you saw the separation emerge where public administration started to, you know, there's some question of whether it was pushed or whether it jumped out of political science and either set up standalone institutions um, or become part of policy schools. Um, what, you know, if I engage in some self-criticism here about my field of public administration, I think we are very good at thinking about how publicness matters to the ways in which public employees work. And how that then has consequences for how it, you know, the, the administrative state operates. I think we're bad uh, at placing that in the context of what are the policy suggestions to fix things sometimes. And I think we're um, maybe, you know, a little bit myopic and focused on, on our own topics. Um, similarly, I would say. There is a lot of really great ideas from public administration that it is hard to get attention to um, amongst those who are in the core disciplines. Um, and so, you know, I'll, we're working on administrative burden, which has had, I think, some success in that area. But I could give you the example of public service motivation, which I think has been like a phenomenally smart insight into why humans want to serve in government which hasn't gotten a ton of traction, at least not um, uh, until relatively recently, even though it's been an idea hanging around in our field since the 1980s. Um, so, you know, I, the, the, I, I feel like I'm, I'm putting myself on the couch here a little bit. What I would say is the field is very open to outsiders who want to come in and engage with discussions of the nitty gritty of policy implementation. And if you talk to people who actually work in government, that's incredibly important. Um, and I think we need some of the perspective that comes from economics, from political science, sociology, and elsewhere uh, to help inform our work. Similarly, I think we have something to offer when it comes to informing those disciplines and maybe, you know, drawing on a hundred years of insights from the way in which public organizations work, that you can't just sort of start with some armchair theorizing. You have to have some deeper understanding of the public setting. What do you think, Pam? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, very briefly, I would just simply say, I do think um, a kind of limitation, particularly in sociology or the literature and sociology around public policy is that it hasn't actually paid much attention to public organizations. It's focused much, with the exception of like um, welfare agencies around TANF and welfare reform. This might even be true in political science, although, um, but certainly in sociology, um, uh, we have not paid attention as much 
um, to effectively implementation. Um, and I think sociology has a lot to add in terms of how we think about inequality. Um, and so I think that's one of the things we're trying to do when we published on racialized administrative burdens with uh, Victor Ray, who's an organizational sociologist, um, in terms of trying to like uh, bridge those kind of two domains. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think PA actually has a lot to offer, at least in sociology, um, how we kind of understand the ways in which uh, policy produces inequality. And, I, I, you know, let me add those, if you can have those spaces, because we recently were working on a symposium with Russell Sage Foundation, which plug will come out sometime in the fall of 2023, um, with people from econ, from political science, sociology, uh, when you can build those spaces where everyone has a common term of reference and are just bringing different insights and skills to the table on the same problems, it's incredibly fun and insightful and engaging. But it takes a lot of work to create those spaces. Um, and it takes, you know, I think a certain set of academics who are interested in looking beyond you know, the narrow incentives within their, their field. Um, so it's it's not easy, but it is it's 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 great fun when it works. As you know, the the next Republican administration is preparing to uh, sort of politicize more of the bureaucracy, um, and does so uh, with and and have more uh, political appointees uh, lower in across agencies. Um, and they say that one reason that they are doing it is because the administrative state is is too powerful, um, and they want to. Um, uh, kind of uh, reduce its role, um, but obviously it, it has implications for the potential uh, for administrative burdens to be increased on purpose. Uh, um, so what, how should we expect um, that, that to play out uh, if it does come to pass? Uh, yeah, that's, it's a great question. I'm actually writing something about this now, so you're, you're catching me as I'm thinking about it. Um, I, I think this is quite bad for the American administrative state. And I think it's quite bad for American democracy. Um, and in particular, you know, th there have been debates around this topic for a long time. The Heritage Foundation just relate, released their mandate for leadership, which they release every four years since the Reagan administration's basically telling the Republican candidate, here's how you should govern. Um, and what's different about it relative to prior examples is now that they include uh, Schedule F as a recommendation, which is this executive order that would allow a president to uh, wave a magic wand and convert potentially tens of thousands of career employees into political appointees, which means the president could fire them um, and they lose job protections. Um, and I think that would really undermine uh, the quality of government, uh, political scientists who study uh, expertise like Gilmerd and Patty argue the importance of having sort of stability and a long-term ability um, on the part of career employees to shape the government as, as a requisite for a functional government. So you would remove that. Um, the best evidence that we have um, from um, um, political scientists like David Lewis is that more political politicization leads to worse outcomes in terms of competence and capacity. Um, so I, I think if once you start devaluing expertise, um, you're going to worsen 
the quality of government in fundamental ways. But the democracy part is the more important part. I mean, if you look at what happened during the first Trump administration, uh, the uh, impeachment process related to Ukraine basically involved some career employees saying, this is illegal, we shouldn't be doing this. And some political appointees saying, no, this is fine. Um, And it turned out it was illegal. And some of those career officials ended up resigning or got denied promotions. But in a world where Schedule F existed, those people would have been fired um, or they would never have voiced their concerns in the first place. So values like transparency and accountability um, and, you know, the, the government works for the legislature. It doesn't just work for the executive branch as well. Um, and if you sort of, uh, um, make them less res- more responsive to the president, the chances are they're going to be less responsive to the legislature. So I am not a fan. I think there are many better ways to make the government more attentive to reducing burdens, both on businesses and on individuals. I think there are lots of things the federal government should be doing. I think there's room for a broader policy discussion on how do we build the American administrative state that's framed in more positive terms. And, you know, top of my list would be it has to be easier to hire smart people in government than it is currently. Um, I see this from colleagues, students. Um, uh, it's just incredibly difficult to get people into government quickly. Um, especially if they don't follow the traditional, you know, you're going to be here for the rest of your career model. Um, I think there may be cases where it should be easier to fire people, but the biggest challenge is we have a ton of people who are about to retire in the federal government. We have real skill gaps. Uh, We need to be able to hire better and more quickly. Anything else we didn't get to that you wanted to include or anything you're working on now that you want to tout? Well, let me give a plug for the idea that we should be paying a lot more attention to the role of technology as an enabling factor and the use of administrative data as an enabling factor to making government work mm-hmm. better in American life. And, you know, I think this is this feeds into a broader discussion about where we think the American administrative state is going and whether it can do big things again. Um, but those are two of the tools that we haven't been using as aggressively as we could to uh, enable government to actually provide value in ways that, that citizens appreciate. Yeah. And just to give like a super concrete example of this, um, you know, the Department of Education uh, could benefit a lot from having more access to IRS data um, to ensure people are eligible for like varying student loan relief programs were actually receiving benefits from those programs, for example. Uh, This is a common issue across the federal government um, that they really struggle for for real um, statute reasons and I think also organizational cultural reasons, both um, really struggle to share data in ways that can like really significantly reduce burdens um, in really high impact ways. Um, So I do think I agree with that. That's like going to be a key issue moving forward if we're really going to improve. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, all linked on our website. How Bureaucrats Make Good Policy. Why Lawyers Rule American Politics? Can Democrats Design Social Programs That Survive? How Obamacare and Medicaid Drive Voting? How Presidential Appointments Reveal Policy Goals and Elite Interests? 
Thanks to Donald Moynihan and Pamela Hurd for joining me. Please check out Administrative Burden, Policymaking by Other Means, and then listen in next time. Thank you.